Hello, my name is Paul Kearney and I am Professor of Politics and Public Policy at the University of Stirling. This is Chapter 8, Who Should Be Involved in the Process of Policy Analysis. Now, if, been, if you've been listening to the chapters up to now, you'll notice that I, I really struggle to pronounce policy analysis and policy analyst, but bear with me. I just need to talk a bit slower. Okay, so this chapter compares two different approaches to the production of policy-relevant knowledge. Now, they're not mutually exclusive, exclusive. I think of them as ideal types that we can use to compare with each other. You don't find them quite like this in the real world, but it's useful to tease out their key elements. Okay, so the first is the so-called evidence-based policymaking, which emphasises the role of a small number of experts synthesising evidence for policymakers. The second is co-production, which emphasises the role of deliberation between a large and more diverse group of people. Now, as I say, the, these approaches are not mutually exclusive. And in fact, many people try to combine both of those things, but they present important trade-offs that no policy analysts should ignore. Now, I'm, go I'm going to introduce both of their stories here. But um, as with the policy concepts and theories, there is a huge amount of other material that you can follow instead of this, this one. Uh, there's many posts and recorded lectures on my website. So look for the pages called EBPM for the evidence-based stuff. And then look for the page that's called ANTSOG, which is a series of uh, talks in Australia and New Zealand, you know, primarily about you know the role of evidence and policymaking. So that's where you go if you want much more on, on that kind of topic. Okay, so for now, the key issues for policy analysts, are, you know, I've broken them down into three. Uh, so the first is how many people should be involved in policy analysis. I'm talking about a few key experts or many so-called non-expert voices. Second, whose knowledge counts? So we've talked about the fact that you know assigning value to knowledge is a political act that can reinforce inequalities, particularly if you rely on a narrow range of scientific sources. Or you can focus on challenging those inequalities when giving more respect to a wider range of academic and experiential sources. And third, who should control policy analysis and, and then policy design? Okay, so you could imagine a relatively centralised uh, form of government in which your aim is to roll out, uh, you know, the allegedly best policy instruments nationally, you know, keep it uniform, because you know, those are the, the evidence-based instruments. Or do you want to go for decentralised measures to allow people the discretion to make different choices based on the same policy analysis? Okay, so the two stories. We'll start with the story of evidence-based policymaking. And again, this is kind of stylized just to you know, get us thinking. So one story of evidence-based policy analysis is that it should be based on the best available evidence of what works. Now, what works was a kind of key phrase used by the Labour government under Tony Blair in the UK, and it, it took off in many other countries. You know, what, what matters is what works. And in this kind of scenario, often the description of the best evidence relates to the idea that there is a hierarchy of evidence according to the research methods that people use. So at the top would be the systematic review of experimental or randomised control trials. 
and at the bottom would be expertise. And in a lot of these hierarchies, you don't even find things like practitioner experience or, or knowledge or stakeholder feedback, user feedback, you know, community knowledge, that sort of thing. This kind of narrow uh, sense of what counts and this hierarchy has major implications for policy learning and policy transfer. Now, you can also look up on the concepts page, the thousand words page. There, there are one or two um, podcasts on policy transfer as well. You know, policy transfer, you know, in a, in a very kind of simple sense is the importation of an idea or an intervention from another regional government. <clears throat> So, put simply, uh, this kind of you know, evidence-based approach fosters an experimental method designed to identify the causal effect of a very narrowly defined policy intervention. And then, you know, if you were to import it or scale it up to a, a larger region, it would be akin to describing how you, uh, you know, dispense medicine. Okay, so the evidence identifies the causal effect of a specific active ingredient to be administered with the right dosage. Now that suggests, you know, this idea of fidelity. You have to, you have to stay, you know, uh, faithful to the, the evidence of what works. And so there's a very strong commitment to a uniform model. And a key point is that precludes the kind of consensus-seeking processes we might associate with collaboration or co-production. Because the idea is that many voices contribute to policy design to suit a specific context. And you can't do that if you've already decided what the, the uniform model is. Then you have a story of co-production on policy making. Now, again, there are lots of different versions of this story. Uh, but one is that it should be based on respectful conversations between a wide range and large number of policymakers and citizens. And often descriptions emphasise the diversity and value of diverse policy relevant information and knowledge in which you you still value scientific evidence but you consider it alongside other forms of research and experiential knowledge community voices and other you know sources of norm normative um, debate and values uh, so this sim this rejection of a simple narrow hierarchy of evidence also has major implications for policy learning and transfer. So to put it simply, uh, in this case, you know, co-production or collaborative method is designed to identify the positive effect of a process. You know, uh, you know, so the, the effect would be high ownership amongst a community uh, about how to define a problem and, you know, high uh, wide commitment to a commonly agreed solution. And that would necessitate you know, the absence of central government control. Uh, so if you're talking about that kind of collaborative governance, you know, one, one potential cause of its success is the process used to foster agreement rather than the intervention itself, or, you know, or as well as the intervention. Okay, and indeed part of that collaboration might be to produce the rules of collective action and the criteria to evaluate success. You know, so you wouldn't leave that simply to analysts or scientists. Now, if you have such a strong commitment to those processes, it precludes the adoption of a uniform evidence-based model that we might associate with narrowly defined stories of evidence-based policymaking. So I summarise those in, in, a, in a table in which uh, you have the following categories. So the first is 
the main story of each one. You know, so the evidence-based story is that interventions are highly regarded when backed by empirical data from international RCTs. Whereas the co-production story is people tell stories of policy experiences, they invite other people to learn from them, and policy is driven not by the evidence, but by governance principles, which are about co-producing policy with communities and users. So you could see how those two differences would would lead to other questions about how you gather evidence for policy analysis. So with the evidence-based stories, uh, you know, you have a very kind of um, relatively narrow search based on methods, whereas gathering evidence uh, through co-production uh, is much more about generating diverse sources of, sources of knowledge for many people. Uh, then the next question might be, how do you you know, uh, scale up activity or, you know, uh, you know, seek evidence-based best practice? Well, with the evidence-based story, you're talking about a uniform model with fidelity and the correct dosage and such like. Whereas with co-production, this is much more about telling people stories of your policy experiences and, and inviting other people to learn from them with no obligation to, to do the same thing. So in one case, the, the biggest aim is to ensure the the, the correct administration of the same ingredient, because that is the, you know, the evidence supports that intervention. And different aim is to foster principles like localism and respect for communities and service user experiences. Now, the key point is you might want both of those things. Both of them might, might sound like they have good elements, so why not seek the best of both worlds? Uh, but I think, you know, that's fine. But I think what I've described is, is in practice governments do you know they have they, they often describe this idea of letting a, a thousand flowers bloom, but it's not clear if they're doing you know, if they're doing that deliberately with or with clarity, or they simply contain a lot of contradictory practices that they don't know how to deal with. So at the very least, if we want both, we also need clarity on how to connect them to avoid the sense that we're just you know, contributing to a big mess of approaches. Okay, or perhaps just as worryingly, people often use the language of co-production to boost the legitimacy of expert-driven processes or to boost the legitimacy of your policy analysis. Uh, you know, they, often people uh, use the, the language of co-production as a veneer to say, okay, well, we've spoken with many people, therefore this scientific work has more value. Now, those kind of opportunities are, uh, well, not opportunities, those kind of issues should prompt you to question your role as a policy ana analyst. Okay, so in this discussion, we ask if your role is simply to gather the best evidence for a client according to methods or publications, or generate new insights from stakeholders and citizens, your wider voices. And in the next <clears throat> chapter, we consider such questions as part of a a wider examination of what the role of a policy analyst should be.